We will now read our passage. This is Exodus twenty seventeen, Philippians four, ten through thirteen. Please listen as we read God's inerrant word. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Our God of mercy and grace, we thank you for all of your gifts that you have so freely and graciously given to us. Uh, We return these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings to you because they have come to us from your hand, and we ask that you would use them in order that the wonderful good news of the gospel would be proclaimed here and throughout the world in order that your kingdom would be revealed and that the kingdom of darkness would be pushed back. Father, we pray that as we ourselves prepare to sit beneath your word and to hear this same gospel that we long to go out into the world, we pray that you would help us, that you would help us to avoid seeking contentment in your gifts, but to seek contentment in you, to seek satisfaction and peace and wholeness in you. And so we ask that those of us who come through these doors this morning who find themselves burdened and weary and hurting and anxious, we ask that you would take us to Jesus. And in Jesus, that you would satisfy our weary hearts and that in him you would give us a hope that abides. And Father, for those of us who gather today who find themselves comfortable or even angry and bitter and proud, we pray that you would also take us to Jesus, that we would find in Jesus the only master who can ever set us free. Father, we do plead with you that as we look into your word, you would Grace us with your spirit, that you would take these words and write them upon our hearts, that we would be reminded this very day that no matter the differences that exist between us, that really we are all the same because we are all far more broken than we could ever imagine. And so we stand together in need of the same thing. We stand together in need of Jesus in order that it can be true of us. That at the same time we are far more broken than we imagine, we are reminded that we are also far more loved and far more accepted, far more secure than we could have ever dreamed possible because of what you have done for us through the person and work of Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated.
Children are dismissed to children's church, children ages three to six. You can make your way to the back of the sanctuary at this time. Well, we finally made it to the the 10th commandment this morning. Each week we've been reading um, the commandments one by one from Exodus chapter 20, but we've also been pairing those commandments with other passages of Scripture, other passages of Scripture that help us understand the depth and the breadth of those commands. Um, And so we're going to finish this week, and then we're going to consider the end of Exodus uh, chapter 20 as our conclusion next week. Um, Something that I've really been trying, probably to the point of annoying you each week, is to remind you at the outset of looking at these commands each week, is that these commands, on the one hand, are a study of our humanity. These commands tell us what God has designed us to be. But in doing so, when we look at the commands, we we come face to face with our brokenness. And what this does is it forces a twofold question back upon us. Who will deliver us? And as the band Matchbox 20 put it, um, how will we ever get it back to good, right? Um, So who will deliver us and how will our humanity be restored? And we're going to look for those answers as we deal with this last commandment that really forces us to deal with our feelings, uh, that forces us to deal with our desires, our motivations. You shall not covet. When you go to visit a new doctor, you have to fill out all that paperwork sitting in that waiting room. And they want your name and your address and your insurance information and all that kind of stuff. They want to know if you have any allergies to medications, uh, who's the emergency contact and phone number. That's a scary one. Um, Usually there's a section in there that that asks you to check all these boxes that apply, right? Um, Have you ever had major surgery or kidney disease or failure or something like that? Um, But there's always a question in there, actually multiple questions that have to do with, have you ever had heart trouble or are you aware of any heart disease in your family? Now, why is that? Why do they ask that on the form before you ever see the doctor? I think at least part of the reason I, I'm not a doctor, um, although a couple of weeks ago I stayed in the Holiday Inn Express. Um, but, you know, at least part of the reason must... That was funny. <laughs> y'all, don't watch, y'all don't watch enough TV. Um, anyway, part of the reason has to be um, that the doctor can't look at you and see a history of heart disease. The doctor can't look at you and just seeing you sitting in his office can't tell if you've had or experienced heart trouble, right? We might be able to see the effects of heart trouble, right? The medication you or your father is taking, the scar from bypass surgery, something like that. But he asks because he can't see the condition of your heart and he certainly can't see its effects in your family tree. The final command The climax of the commands, as Francis Schaeffer puts it, deals in matters of the heart, matters of desire, and matters of feeling. Just like physical heart disease, often the effects of a diseased spiritual heart can be seen. The the consequences of disordered and misdirected desires can be seen, but the heart itself 
desire itself can't be seen. This is what one author writes. In making matters of the heart, inclinations and feelings a concern of the commandments, dealings between us and God have been taken to a deeper, more perplexing level. Here is a God who does not deal in the modern dichotomy between the inner and the outer, the subjective and the objective, the personal and the communal. It is all of one piece. God is concerned with not only what we do, but also how we feel, what we desire, the things of the heart. Why is this commandment of all the commandments the climax of the commandments? Because as Francis Schaeffer puts it, Anytime we break one of the other commandments, it necessarily means that we've already broken this commandment. Or as the author of Proverbs puts it, right? Out of the heart flow the issues of life. So in this final command that deals with matters of the heart, I want us to look and see three things. I want us to see that we were designed to desire that our true problem is our disordered desires. And finally, I want us to see how our desires can be redeemed. So designed to desire, disordered desire, and finally desire redeemed. First and briefly, I want us to consider that we were designed to desire. It's one thing for me to say to you in the weeks that have already passed that God made you to respect life wherever it is found or to live in truth or to own things and not steal or take wrongly. But I I think it feels a little different in this last command to say that God made you to desire. Maybe it's just me, but desire, pleasure, passion, want, hunger, and thirst. Those almost sound like bad words in a church. Um, It's interesting that in Genesis chapter 2, when God was describing how he created man, this is what we read. And the Lord God planted a garden in the east, and there he put the man he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I think that's a fascinating little detail, that God made a world that was pleasant, that it was pleasurable just to look at and behold. No sin, no brokenness in the world. God made you and designed you to be a creature of desire, to see beauty and desire it, right? To experience pleasure. But, you know, immediately someone's thinking, and you're right to be thinking along this this track of thinking. You think, wasn't desire Eve's big problem in the garden? Because in Genesis 3, this is what we hear. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now, you're going to have to wait for the second point because I'm making the argument here that the problem wasn't Eve's desire. The problem was her disordered desire, desire misdirected, if you will. Here I simply want you to recognize in this first point that God designed us to desire. That desire is necessary. That desire is essential to yours and mine, my humanity. 
A few times a year, I quote from a sermon from a preacher in the late 18th, early 19th century named Thomas Chalmers. It's a little difficult to hear someone quote Chalmers than it is to read him. So I'm not going to read too much. But just a couple of things here. He writes, its desire for one particular object may be conquered. But as to its desire for having some one object or other, this is unconquerable. See, in other words, he's saying, we may change what we desire, but the one thing that cannot be conquered, that cannot be stopped, that cannot be done away with, is desire. He goes on to say, such is the grasping tendency of the human heart, that it must have something to lay hold of, and which, if wrestled away without the substitution of another something in its place, would leave an intolerable void and vacancy. Same kind of thing, really. He's saying our hearts were made and designed to desire. To tell someone to stop desiring is inhumane, really, and completely unnatural. Let me give you one piece of baited application before we move on to the second point. Chalmers said that in that, he said in that same sermon that because we are designed like this, the moralist has never succeeded in actually changing anyone. Right? See, all of your attempts and mine to kill desire with bare, bare moralism, right, or legalism, clenched teeth effort, guilt-ridden force, threats and terrors of a coming vengeance, as Chalmers puts it, will never really change you. Whether the desire that plagues you is greed, power, sexual lust, control, gluttony, whatever, desire itself cannot be stopped. It, can't, it cannot be halted. All the guilt, all the fear, all the clenched teeth, willpower you can muster will never be enough to stop your desires. Now, maybe that feels a little hopeless. I, I don't know where you are right now. That might feel a little bit hopeless, but you have to wait because we're, we're building to something here. Second, we need to turn and talk about our disordered desires. Remember, this is what Eve's real problem was. It, the problem wasn't her desire, but her disordered desire when she looked at that fruit and she took that fruit when the command was not to eat, her desires had fallen out of order. They were corrupted and disordered. The author Anne Lamott, she wrote, I'll go to my grave convinced that you can find happiness out there somewhere with the right someone or good financing. If you could just get things lined up properly, you could relax. Learn to experience life in all its immediacy. Reconnect with who you really are, with the soul or spirit, the divine, what you call it, deep inside that sparks when it hears certain music. I'm not stupid. I'm an American, she writes. That last part kind of hits us from out of left field a little bit. The belief that we can acquire right something or arrive somewhere that will scratch that itch, quench that thirst or quell the hunger pains. If this, if just that, if just, then maybe I can finally rest, can finally relax, right? Can finally be satisfied and at peace. And honestly, this is not an American problem. It's a human problem. But in a land of plenty, we are particularly susceptible to this idea 
that wholeness and fulfillment and satisfaction is within our reach somehow. David Brooks, a conservative New York Times columnist, he paints a picture of our distinctly American culture. And he writes this. Born in abundance, inspired by opportunity, nurtured in imagination, spiritualized by a sense of God's blessing and call and realized in ordinary life day by day. This paradise spell is the controlling ideology of American life. Just out of reach, just beyond the next ride, just with the next home or or entrepreneurial scheme or diet plan, just with the next political hero, the next credit card purchase or the next true love, just with the the right all-terrain vehicle, the right summer home, the right meditation technique or the right motivational seminar, just with the right schools, the right community values and the proper morality, just with the right beer and a good set of buddies, just with the next technology or after the next shopping spree. He writes, there is this spot you can get to where all tensions melt, all time pressures are relieved, and all contentment can be realized. Now listen, you are probably like me in that you're smart enough not to say that stuff out loud. Right? But I'm telling you, if I just had more money put away, you know... A summer home, nothing big or pretentious, something quiet and modest on a lake somewhere. You know, if I could just get into the right zip code for my kids' school, then I could rest, then I could be at peace. Don't covet, God says, right? Not your neighbor's house, not your neighbor's wife, not his manservant or female servant, right? Not his ox. Or his donkey. And then this nice little tag on. Or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That covers everything, right? Not your neighbor's personality. Not a different social network. Not your neighbor's reputation. Lake house or opportunities in life. All those things you think. If just. If this or if that. Right about now, you're probably wondering where I'm going with all this. What does all of this have to do with disordered desires? Think with me, just for a second. None of what we have mentioned so far is sinful or immoral in and of itself. Right? There's nothing sinful about a savings account or a summer home or a social network or or good opportunities. There's nothing moral or immoral about what neighborhood you happen to live in or your personality type, or technology, or oxen, or donkeys, or houses, and on and on and on. Here's the real issue. As someone else once said, the Tenth Commandment is the first commandment in psychological terms. You turn a paycheck, a spouse, a zip code, a summer home, a football team, alcohol, sex... Sundays falling after Saturdays in the South are interesting. Football. Um, Reputation. You turn your career into a God that you have to have, into a God that you think will save you. And by save, I'm saying you think it will make you whole and satisfied and complete. Make it the thing you desire first and foremost. And your disordered love and disordered desires for your career reputation, sex, or whatever, it will turn you into a slave 
and pull your life apart. Our problem isn't desire. Our deep problem is our disordered desires. And let me tell you something. Here's the deal with all the functional saviors of our lives, whether they are zip codes, paychecks, or spouses. You can't ever have a savior without it also being a master. Those two things always go together. And every single one of us here today in this room, no matter who we are or where we have come from, we are all serving a Savior at this very moment. Good old Bob Dylan. He was on to something when he sang, you may be a construction worker working on a home, you may be living in a mansion, or you might live in a dome. You might own guns and you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord, you might even own banks. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It's a long song. But his point is this. We're all serving something or someone, the things we are chasing for freedom in this life, if we just get that, we'll be free. Dylan says, they're owning you. The Bible says they have become your master and you are a slave to those things. Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon, who I've mentioned throughout this series, partly because I just like saying their names, they write this, and I put it on the front of your bulletin, But they say this, so here in the last commandment, we discover what the whole Decalogue or Ten Commandments are about, namely that we were created to love God. And when that love is misdirected, life degenerates into a jumble of disordered desires, fragments testifying that we were meant to be something quite else than what we have become. See, nobody starts out or decides one day and says, I cannot wait to abandon my family for a career. You don't start out saying, I want to destroy my health by working so much just to get that summer home. No one says, I want to become a slave to everyone's opinion of me by caring so much about my reputation. No one says, I can't wait to compromise my own standards just to get ahead or just to get inside that network. No one says, I can't wait to become addicted to this or that. But it's happening all the time, right? Our disordered desires are pulling our lives apart, promising salvation, but enslaving us, holding out the hope of peace and contentment but never delivering on that hope. All right, now that we've said all that and maybe be a little bit depressed, um, everything is really setting us up for this final point, our desires redeemed. Johnny Cash, he sang in his song, The Wanderer, um, I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. See, the 10th commandment exposes us. We want the good things of life. We want the blessings of God's kingdom poured out upon us. But we just don't want God. We don't want him interfering and meddling in that. And some of us, so we can add to our little list here, some of us will even turn to religion, won't we? 
buttoned up morality and hemmed in lifestyles and checklists that we go through for our performances and the emptiness that is behind the eyes. It tells the story of a religious slavery, of life without peace and without joy. So how in the world can our disordered desires, even if they are religious and have that kind of flavor to them, how can they be redeemed? How can they ever fall back into the right order? You know, it's hard to really hide the punchline of where this sermon is going when you read that passage out of Philippians. Um, The opposite of coveting, of disordered desire, is contentment. Contentment, wholeness, satisfaction, completion, rest, joy, fullness. The thing we've been chasing, the thing we've been grasping for all our lives, but has been a vanity of vanities, like chasing the wind. We reach for it and grab for it, but it slips through our fingers like the wind, right? The second we think we have it, we see the chains of our slavery. We've been chasing contentment in all kinds of things. And Paul says to the Philippians and to us, I found it. Right? And it's so very clear that it has lifted him above his circumstances. Because he talks about being content in need and in plenty. Contentment in hunger and abundance. He found a wholeness, a satisfaction, a completion that was somehow untouchable by life circumstances. Right now, you might be thinking, why did I get up and come this morning? You know, Anne Lamott, some guy named Stanley. Now I'm about to give you some stoic philosophy, okay? You just hold on. This is just a couple of seconds, okay? Um, You know, stoic philosophy... It's, uh, it, it was around in Paul's day. And that's where he's borrowing this word for content from in this passage. But he's filling it with entirely new meaning, right? When Paul is talking about, what Paul is talking about in this passage is the ability to be sad but not crushed. Right? He's talking about not despairing when life crumbles. You see, the, the Stoics, they had come along and they had said that the way to be content, what they talked about contentment, they were talking about being completely independent and self-reliant. So that the, in that way, being so self-reliant that you guarded your life from the ups and downs of life, right? But Paul is saying something very, very different from that. Paul is saying in this passage, when we, when we read in, in the last verse, let me find the last verse, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is saying here, he's saying, I have found contentment because I have found Jesus. I'm not depending upon myself, but I'm depending upon Jesus. And that's how he is buffered between the extremes, right? Because Paul is saying... I know how to be thankful for the promotion, to be thankful for the children that turn out well and for good opportunities in my life. I know how to be thankful without becoming conceited and proud and arrogant. He's saying, I know how to have without needing. Right? And that's very, very hard for us. It's hard for me, hard for us to see grace in times of plenty. It's hard for us to see it in times of need, but maybe even harder to see it in times of abundance and simply to be thankful. 
Isn't this curious that Paul talks about contentment in times of plenty? Because after all, what he's saying when he says that is he's saying there's nothing sinful or immoral about having plenty. They are gifts to you from God. And you can rightly enjoy and experience pleasure and be thankful for plenty only when your desires are rightly ordered. A long time ago, I went sailing with some friends in the British Virgin Islands. Um, it's a beautiful place that had really great sailing. And if you go to the British Island, the British Virgin Islands, it has great sailing because it's these channels of islands, right? These two chains of islands. And in between is the Sir Francis Drake Channel. And the wind whips through there and makes for really great sailing. But the other thing that makes for really great sailing there is that these chain of islands, they block all the big waves of the ocean, Right. So one day we were, we were sailing and we got out beyond this chain of islands into the big water. We got into the big water and all of a sudden I found myself getting very, very sick um, because all of a sudden we were in these 15 foot swells. And one moment I'm looking down at the waves and the next moment I'm looking up at the next wave. And it was driving me crazy and I was about to throw up. And this friend that was with us, who was an experienced sailor, he told us, you have to look back at the ground. Look at that island in the distance. Because what he was saying is you need to find something to focus on that's immovable, unshakable, and solid. And sure enough, when I was able to do that and get my eyes focused on that island, I was able to ride the ups and downs without getting sick. What you and I desperately need in the tossing and turning of our lives In the ups and downs, right, we need a still point. We need a still point, an unchanging, unmovable, unshakable still point. And Paul is saying to the Philippians and to us that that still point for him is Jesus. And when you look at him, when he is your desire first and foremost, then you can be steady in the midst of all the ups and downs and the turning and the twisting, and only when your desire to succeed in your career has been replaced with the desire for the smile of Jesus, he is saying. Only then will you be able to endure the ups and downs of contentment. Only when your desire for romantic love has been replaced with the embrace of Jesus. Only when your desire for approval has been replaced by the certain acceptance and love of Jesus. Only when your desire for things has been replaced for having Jesus, will you be free from the tossing and turning in life? And only then will you begin to really change from the inside out, because only then will all your other desires find their proper order. And only then will we have come home to the only master that can ever set us free. Now, I hope that you find some of that practical But I'm going to take it one more step in practicality this morning because Paul tells us in this passage that he learned the secret of being content. In other words, you have to learn contentment. It doesn't come automatically. You have to practice contentment. It will not come out automatically to you because it didn't come automatically to Paul. I really enjoy watching professional athletes do their thing. And I think I, I like it most in slow motion um, because then when it's slowed down, I can really see what's happening. 
You know, the NBA point guard, when he drives the lane and you think he's got nowhere to go and he jumps and you're thinking you're jumping in the midst of these towers, what are you doing? But he spins in the air and somehow effortlessly is able to dish the ball off to somebody else who who dunks the ball. It looks so easy. It looks so effortless, right? The quarterback who narrowly escapes this 300-pound lineman breathing down his neck, and he threads the needle with a pass 30 yards down the field. Or the baseball player, you know, he turns his hips and his arms at just the right time, and you see all his muscles rippling in his body, and he turns on that pitch thrown from 60 feet, 6 inches away, and he smashed. How does he do that? That ball was thrown 90 miles an hour. You can only see it in slow motion, right? But it looks so smooth in slow motion. It looks so effortless. You know, here's what I'm saying. Are those men gifted athletes? Of course they are. But the reason they're able to do it, and it looks so effortless, is because they have spent hours upon hours, upon hours, upon hours of hitting baseballs, right? And throwing passes and dribbling basketballs, right? You will not learn contentment without practice. That is what Paul is telling us here. So how do you learn to rest in Jesus? How do you make that become second nature to you? And this is what I'm talking about. That it's so natural for you to rest in Jesus that as soon as you get laid off, it's instinctual to you. So natural that when you sell your company and make so much money that it becomes second nature to be content in Jesus. So natural that when your spouse betrays you, that this is reflex to rest in Jesus. So natural that when you get the promotion, it kicks in and you are content in times of plenty and a need. You do it by learning to look at Jesus in any and every circumstance of life. As many others have said before me, day in and day out, tomorrow morning when you meet with your boss, when the paycheck gets deposited in your bank account, or when you hold your crying and hurt child, or when you embrace your spouse, you need to learn how to preach the gospel to yourself in that moment. In all those moments, that Jesus, the King of Kings, he lost everything so that he might gain, so that you and me in him might gain everything. He came and he lost his father's smile so that you would never lose the father's smile, that he embraced death in your place so that you might embrace life in him. And the more he shines brighter, fairer, and more beautiful in your eyes, the more all your other desires will begin to find their proper order. And you will be able to gain it all without needing it at all. And you will be able to lose it all without losing your joy or your identity. Come to Jesus and find rest. He promises his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He is the one master, the one savior who can set you free in this life. Let's pray together. Our heavenly father, we thank you that you are a good God who gives good gifts to his creation and you have poured out many gifts upon you. And father, we pray that you would forgive us. You would forgive us for the ways in which we worship those gifts. We fall down before those gifts. 
we give our lives to get those gifts and we seek contentment and satisfaction and joy in those gifts. Father, forgive us and help us to find life and joy and wholeness and peace and rest in you. Turn our eyes, we pray, and place them upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our salvation. Father, turn our eyes, we pray, and place place them upon Jesus in order that we might enjoy all the good things in this life that you have given to us. Only when they are enjoyed in their proper order, order can they be good for us. So, Father, we pray that you would set us free from our slavery. That you would send us regularly running to the cross in any and every circumstance of life. To preach the gospel to ourselves, to be reminded of the good news of your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.